0: Hey everybody, it's Adam Shartoff, your host of Film Wax Radio. It is Friday, November 4th, 2022, and this is episode number 740. What a great episode, as usual. I always say it's a great episode, but this time I'm really <laughs> extra excited because I have on two wonderful guests. Back on the show, Andy Ostroy. He is a filmmaker. He made a, a documentary about his late wife, Adrian Shelley, last year called Adrian. which I had him on the show with that ep- uh, film. And I found him, to, I didn't know at the time, I don't think, but he is a neighbor of mine. So that was another sort of bonus. And when the opportunity came to bring him back on, because he has a podcast called The Back Room, I grabbed the opportunity. And so Andy and I will be back on. And um turns out that somebody he he works with on the podcast was a former camper of mine, I mean, she was a camper while I was a camp counselor in Vermont back in the 1980s, so that was kind of funny. Anyway, Andy will be on in the second segment. First up here, though, yeah, I'm very excited about, is the film critic, the feminist, author, all, I mean, the amazing Molly Haskell is going to be on the show for the first time. Turner Classic Movies announced its series, Reframed, will return for a second year, focusing on films that shaped our culture, beginning tomorrow, Saturday, November 5th with I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang which came out in 1932. TCM host Ben Mankiewicz will introduce the movies with help from various film historians including Donald Bogle, filmmaker Kimberly Pierce, screenwriter Larry Karazuski, and my guest today, film critic Molly Haskell. Uh, Molly Haskell is an American feminist film critic and author. She contributed to The Village Voice, first as a theater critic then as a film reviewer, and from there moved to New York Magazine and Vogue. Her most influential book, which is one of many she has published, is called From Reverence to Rape, The Treatment of Women in the Movies. Another detail that's kind of, well, not kind of, but very interesting, that's quite interesting is she was married to film critic Andrew Sarris. Two of them, both very legendary. He passed away in 2012 Molly is still a powerhouse. Um, I wasn't sure what to expect. Some film critics tend to be inside their heads a lot. I don't relate to that type of film critic. I've had, ai might have even had a, one or two on my show. Uh, they are not exactly the most gratifying conversations I've had. I might kind of prefer people that kind of have a more more of an emotional response and speak from an emotional standpoint about, well, any kind of art, but movies in particular. And um, that's the way I approach it, I guess. So maybe that's just why, but I feel like if you intellectualize, you're missing the point. So uh, Molly, totally down to earth, it turns out, completely warm, funny person, enjoyed completely having a conversation. And I'm so glad that uh, right in time for TCM's second season of Reframe, you'll get the opportunity to hear from... My conversation, my hear my conversation with Molly Haskell, the critic. Here it is right now on Phil Black's Radio. Nice to meet I'm you. good.
1: Nice to meet you. It was a little confusion about the time, but I get we finally connected.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for accommodating the my time, and uh, it was like a one of these things where I had to figure out: am I going to do this before I go to work, or will I do this? Where are you? Work? Where are you? I'm now in the Hudson Valley. Uh huh. So you're on the
1: same time. As yes. me. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And, and where are you?
1: In New York City.
0: Okay. Very good. Yeah. No, I do, I left. Um, <laughs> I moved a little north of the city a little while back, and uh, you. You know. It's and landed here in this radio station. It's a bit of a, I'm sure a little, I'm sure it's like a, it could be a a film Capra, Frank Capra type of film story, you know,
1: small town, big town boy goes to small town.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. With big, big media ideas. And (laughs) has to learn how to uh, be very, um, you know, sort of just uh, be a little bit more uh, listening more than talking and yeah. Kind of learn. Learn how to do things up here in a new way, but mm-hmm. it's been fantastic.
1: Great. Yeah. Was that a COVID move, or, or had you already done yeah, it? Yeah.
0: Well, let's put it this way, Molly. It, it 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 sped up the it sped up the plan. How's that?
1: <laughs> okay, accelerated. Okay, Got accelerated
0: it. right the schedule mm-hmm. a little bit because I I was. I was planning on doing after my son graduated high school, which would have been this past spring, but it kind of just moved my data and it turned out it was a good thing. So we, you know, everybody adapted. So
1: good. That's good. Good news. Yeah. How are you and your family and how have you guys? I'm I'm a family of one. So (laughs) it's just, I'm just surviving. No, I'm doing fine. In fact, I haven't gotten, I'm the only person I know that hadn't gotten COVID yet. Wow. (laughs) Probably will at some point. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've I've just I come back into the city. I I, I spend the summer on Long Island, and then I've, I'm back here, and I'm just so glad to be back in the city. Somehow, I just I love New York this time of year. So, it's fantastic. And you know, I have to say the same up here.
0: It's almost like it's as close to paradise as I've I've seen when you just get up early and you just if you happen to be driving over the Hudson towards yeah. looking at the Catskills. It's it's it's, it's kind of uh, yeah. I never take it for granted. You know, yeah. I don't know. I think after so many decades of being, but you might, you're probably near Central Park.
1: I am. And, you know, it's funny because the leaves haven't aren't that colorful in New York this year. But every, I was talking to some people last night and they said it was very colorful up upstate New York. And yeah. I, remember I went to Yaddo about this time last year and it was the most gorgeous train ride going up along the Hudson. Oh, took your breath away.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it is. A, it's a nice trip, the Hudson Line, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I wanted to move immediately. So good for you. <laughs>
0: I'll, I'll I'll save a spot for you here. Don't worry. Okay. Whenever you're ready, you just let <laughs> me know. Space. Okay. For sure. We'll get the, it's not so, I mean, a lot of people came up here. I wasn't the first. I know. I know. I went
1: Long to, Island, too, people went out. Usually there were summer people and they've stayed out there. So it's really right. a, a change yeah. in people's lives. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, I went to Bard for a while when I was up. Uh, so I was already f- very familiar. And then there's, there is, actually, there's actually a nifty film festival. I just went to this past week, right in my county, Columbia County, where Peter Biskin. Peter Biskin,
1: I know about that. Yeah, it looks like a so, really good one. Yeah,
0: it, it really is. We saw uh, Larry Kardish, too. I'm sure you know well. The two of them run or founded this festival. I believe they were the founders. Mm-hmm. And it, we saw The Whale, the new Darren Aronofsky film, which I don't know if you've had a chance to see that one. I right?
1: haven't. You're ahead of me on that one.
0: Well, I think you'll like it. And and even those maybe who are roll their eyes a little bit because of the the Darren Aronofsky's very stylized manner of making films. But in this one, he actually, there's some of that at moments, but it's really is most, I felt, emotionally connective film yet. Maybe oh, it's I,
1: yeah, so it's, I, it's
0: an exciting thing to watch. You know, I think, I think you'll like it. Good,
1: good. There are a lot of good movies. I just saw about ten films at the New York Film Festival, and yes. I sort of selected them ahead of time. But I, lo- I loved every one of them. <clears throat> I thought they were fantastic, and a lot of great. I mean, women directors now are really coming into their own. So that that was exciting.
0: Who who comes to mind? I know, of course, you have a well, some something of, the, of a feminist streak in your. <laughs> well,
1: I do, but I mean, I'm not. I'm not going to promote women directors unless they deserve it in my own mind, Sure. but um, like Joanna Hogg is sort of established, Mm. but I like her film very much. Mia Hansen Love is sort Mm. of established, and I loved her film, and there's a black Senegalese filmmaker, Alice Diop, whose feature film is St. Omer. I looked into some of her others. There's some documentaries she made on on movie, um, And she's incredibly talented in this film. A lot of the films have this kind of stealth rhythm where they don't fill you in in the beginning. They, yes. I don't know if it's sort of a female thing. I think it, a little bit is. This is kind of withholding information. Uh, After Sun is like that too. Uh, a beautiful film by this new Scottish woman filmmaker. And, you know, there's just a dozen. And they're also a lot about the sort of what women, women of ambition have to do all the, all the, all the disjunct disconnect between say a a woman growing up in Senegal and then going to Paris and being educated in Paris and what that does to, you know, the sort of divided sensibility of that. Really interesting.
0: Yeah. And then in terms of like structure um, of films, there's such a now a hundred plus years of cinema to, lean on and that most people grow up with so much cinema or storytelling on the screen anyway that you you know there you don't have to necessarily people kind of figure out where they are a lot faster than they used to.
1: Well they're used to that they're they're sort of more comfortable with that kind of ambiguity than they used to be they don't need to be held by the hand and that's one of the things I loved about the Alice Diop she could have made it this, this sort of polemic this ideological film hammering away at the the fact that this black woman couldn't assimilate in Paris, but she doesn't do that. She sort of lets you come to it and see the complexities of it. And there are no real villains in it. You know, that's what's really interesting. And um, another film like that sort of uh, sneaks up on you is um, uh, Kelly Reichardt's mm. showing up about an artist somewhere in upstate New York played by Kelly Rich. And you just don't know um, played by Michelle Williams. Sorry. And you don't know quite where that's going either. And it becomes a really fascinating study of the sort of both competitiveness and camaraderie among these artists in their working day. Very much a kind of atmosphere, a lot of very atmospheric films at the Joanna Hogg, especially The Eternal Daughter, in which Tilda Swinton plays both mother and daughter. And I was a little apprehensive about that. It sounded a little gimmicky, but she does, it's beautiful. and And there again, I was sort of resisting it for a while. It's a ghost story, but... You absolutely don't know where you are and what's real and what isn't. And finally, that that's what it's all about. How much of our fa- the fantasies we have of our parents, because we can you know, we remember certain things and not others, and we sort of make make sort of put things together and according to how we need to do it emotionally, kind of.
0: Well, uh, a couple of those filmmakers you mentioned have been been on this podcast actually over the years. So, I'm, so, and and I believe Kelly. Uh, Shoots around this area is my guess where I am because I know she also I don't know if she's still teaching at Bard but she was over the years she was teaching film up there.
1: Well, she well it looks like that area. I mean, it looked to me like that one of those places where the Times advertises where you want to get to a little village that's not New York, you know, vibrant arts community. (laughs) Yeah,
0: there's a lot of that here, which is the only reason I can live in this area. Yeah, you know,
1: and and good coffee too, I presume. (laughs) Exactly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's exactly right. Just for those like myself who maybe aren't as aware, before we get to the TCM series reframed, which is kind of what brought us together today, can you just fill me in? When did you find like fifth cinema? When did you first connect
1: more significant
0: way with movies?
1: Well, I came to New York in the sixties, and I was, as was the case in those days, nobody hired. I mean, Time and Newsweek did not hire women writers. Nobody hired women writers. The only thing you could get if you wanted to write was get into public relations. I mean, people would get into publishing, but they were really menial kinds of jobs. So it was not a, it was just, we were just on the verge of the women's movement, but it really hadn't emerged Mm -hmm. yet. Mm -hmm. So I started with this kind of funny advertising PR and a Univac, the computer firm. And then I got the sort of gift of my life, which was through somebody knew somebody at a place called the French film office. It was a the US arm of the French film industry and it promoted French films in the, this country, and I came and there was just a small office of four of us and I was. I public, I was bilingual so I, I wrote and uh, a newsletter that was sent to the critics about French cinema and then I would interpret when it was the height of the Nouvelle Vague when Godard right. and Truffaut. And I uh, would come. Jean-Louis Trentignan. Oh my, my favorite. Oh, God. And so I would interpret. I remember taking Trentignan was here, and we wanted to show him whatever was sort of hip at the time. And so we went down to the, I forget, the village bar where Janice, Janet Joplin was play, was singing. And we sat in the front row. And, you know, she was splurting whiskey, and she was absolutely <laughs> fantastic. and. <laughs> Trentin, you know his eyeballs were popping he's me, formidable so that was like the 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 best thing so I was meeting the critics and I realized that's really what what I wanted to do and
0: so met- so wait just to recap yeah just to recap Molly you're in a bar w- with Jean-Louis Trantignon watching Janis Joplin perform exactly okay cuz you seem to kind of take it for granted like okay <laughs> All <holidays> that's plays pretty- <laughs>
1: work <were, you're> right <laughs> they all wanted to go to harlem too i don't know i don't know how often i did that either but that was the thing at that time they wanted to yeah speak. yeah i'm but sorry anyway. i interrupted you
0: no you no it was
1: great so i met the critics and i read them and i sort of fell in love with andrew saris's writing he was at the village voice and he was sort of establishing the Otar theory in this country and it was just a fantastic time because critic suddenly American cinema cinema and especially American cinema was being taken seriously as an art form and everybody was it was a smaller world and everybody was seeing and writing the same films reading the same critics all across the country right and there's a sort of conversation going on sometimes very acerbic because it was it was very personal it's political but also personal the films you loved and you didn't want nobody could sort of trample on your own uh, on they, they were sort of part of your. It was almost a religious fervor, I think, because um, I, I I guess my own film love began. Well, I grew up in Richmond, where I just saw the usual Hollywood movies, but there was mm-hmm. an art theater, as there was in most cities at the time, and I saw um, uh, um, this Henri Georges Clouseau film. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anyway, oh oh
0: well, you oh yes of course uh, you yeah, saw believe- the.
1: Diabolique.
0: The Di- Diabolique, Diabolique, which yeah. I know has an, had an impact on you. Yeah.
1: It had a huge impact on me, both the, as a film and as for the Frenchness of it. So that was one of the things that inspired me to go to France. And when I was in Paris, it happened actually that Andrew Sarris was there at the same time, but we didn't know each other. We didn't meet till 1966. This was 62. Mm-hmm. And we were sort of probably going to the same films in the same theaters. And, you know, they would they would show because of the, the, their, the French love of cinema, they didn't make distinctions between, you know, uh, Holly, they, they embraced the work of Hollywood directors like John Ford and Howard Hawks and Samuel Fuller. And they didn't have this sort of middle brow snobbery. They just, it was all art to them. And, they, and so that, that's what you could get an education that just sort of covered the waterfront of film genres. And then when I got back, I got the first one job and then the job at the French Film Office. So gradually I thought I was working my way into criticism and they formed, um, this was when Bosley Crowell was re- still reigning at the New York the Times. And Times. Had this huge, I mean, I don't think there's ever been such an influential critic because his taste was completely in alignment with this vast readership. And he was a bit, I mean, he was stodgy. He was sort of not, he had been there for, I don't know what, 20 some years. I had the dates, but I can't remember. So, and it was, he was getting old and new things were coming. And, you know, this famous story about how he sort of missed the boat on Bonnie and Clyde. And anyway, he was eased out. And, but in the meantime, this right. group of critics, including Andrew and Pauline kale at the New Yorker and Um, the time Dick Schickel, um, Joe Morgenstern, who's still writing now for the Wall Street Journal, uh, Hollis Alvin, there was a whole bunch of them from this National Society of Film Critics. And their idea was to somehow counter the influence of Bosley Crowther by, by endorsing independent films or foreign films that he would miss the boat on. And they would do this by somehow establishing they would give the the distributor their endorsement it would appear in an ad or whatever and I went to the group once with Andrew just to sit in on it sure and at that at that group they said we have to vote you know we're a real group now official now we have to have uh, a chairman and so they voted in it was Stanley Kaufman and Stanley Kaufman said the first thing my, my first business is I want to know what Molly Haskell is doing here because you know, I, I was the only non-critic. I mean, I had written a review in Cahiers du Cinema in English and maybe something in a magazine here and there, but I certainly wasn't an established critic. And everybody sort of sort of gasped. And I think I thought, well, now I really have to become a critic. <laughs> <laughs> right. Anyway, yeah. eventually I did become a member of the group and was in it for a while. And it was a, a site of some stormy, meetings and arguments but it was oh my all my gosh to exciting be, yeah. and fun i'm trying to write about it now in a memoir so i'll save some of it for that
0: <laughs> that's great we got a little scoop here though yeah, that's right. thank you for that yeah You're well we'll have to have on. you back on after you that were book the first
1: you were the first
0: to hear thank you molly we'll have to have you back on for okay for that. well, that's um, an
1: incentive to get it done okay
0: okay la- last thing that then I want to ask you because you brought up Jean-Louis I always ask people now I don't always ask them I'm lying but I I mi- I mean to always ask people Catherine Deneuve or Jean Moreau which camp do you fall under oh well I, that
1: doesn't really as, as if you have to
0: make a choice
1: it's a really tough decision to make I mean I guess I'd have to go with Jean Moreau because I, one of the reason, ways I got this job at the French film office they had to test my writing so I didn't know it, but the woman who who I succeeded, the reason I got the, the job was open was because this woman, Helen Scott, who was a, a great big Brooklyn communist um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, film mm-hmm. person, and she was great friends with Francois Truffaut. In fact, when Truffaut came to do the book of him interviewing Hitchcock, Helen was the, was the translator. She was the one that was sat between them. And she was leaving to help Truffaut with his first English language film, oh. Fahrenheit Four Fifty One. So right. the the job was open. So I had to get it, I had to audition by writing something. And They just said write about some French film. So I wrote about um, Jules and Jim. I mean, not knowing that anything about the Truffaut connection or anything. So mm-hmm. that was I hit sort of hit the jackpot on that. And uh, and uh, I loved Jean Marot that. I have to say. I met them both at different times, and they were both prima donnas in their own way. So I don't—I mean, I don't have personal affection, but I have tremendous I admiration for both of them. Absolutely for both right. of them. Right. Yeah.
0: Nicely put. Nicely, and i, I we are in the same camp there. <laughs> okay. Good, my, yeah. um, that's the correct answer. <laughs> okay. Oh, <good>. So that <laughs> was a test. <laughs> <laughs> you would have passed either way. That's uh, right. the. um, well, so tell me how you got all caught up with TCM then, because this will lead us into this okay. conversation well, about the weather. A long time
1: ago, when I did some, some, some programs with Robert Osborne, who I adored, and oh, you yeah. him. R.I.P. Yeah, so we did, I forget what it was, it was a series of films you can't miss or something, and I went down to Atlanta, and I think everything was done in Atlanta then. Oh, that makes and, sense. Yeah, and so we did this series of things, and then that was that. So I hadn't heard from him in years and years and years, So then they called me to do this free free reframed movies that affected the culture. And it would be movies, 60s, 70s, 80s, even 90s movies. Mm -hmm. And I thought, why are they calling me now? I'm all old and ugly. Why didn't they call me when I still look halfway decent? And then I realized what it was. And I'm I'm perfectly happy with this. It's because I'm old and that that works in two ways. Um, I'm old enough to have seen the films when they came out. And I'm old enough that I, I, I can say what I please. I don't have to worry about being canceled. You know, so I can, <laughs> you know, I've got nothing to lose on that score anymore. So I think that's what played it. I mean, my, that's my take on what if, what influenced that decision to get me.
0: Well, you may be, as you, in your own words, old, uh, but you are not elderly. I can say that. And oh, I think goodness. there's a diff- big difference in, the, in those two terms in terms of one state of mind and just the way you talked about you know this generation of of, of filmmakers earlier mm-hmm. the you know it's um it shows a uh more youthful uh outlook you know uh so well is with... just a number is what yeah, this yeah and
1: I, I think you know sometimes i think oh because I, I don't have a lot of energy and i think can i really do this but mm-hmm. when they asked me from the side of the film society to be on a panel a wrap-up of the film's of the festival. So that means seeing a lot of them. And I think, Can I really do this? Cause I oh. just don't have the energy that I once did. And then I do it. And I'm so glad I did it. Nice. And I'm so happy to be still in the film world and thinking about it. And, and of course, I always love seeing older films and sort of rethinking uh, what it meant at the time and what it means now. And so forth. Mm-hmm. So
0: That's right. And that's what reframed is, is trying to do. Exactly. They're giving uh, a context to, and, and describing the impact of film. So season one, was was it a while ago? Are you saying that Robert was part of the first season of Reframed, or was that more recently? I'm not familiar was, with an earlier version. Oh, I thought this was the second um, go-round with Reframed. Maybe it is. I just okay. Uh, well, I missed it if it is. No big deal. And it starts November 5th, mm-hmm. and there's 16 films in the series. It's, yeah, it says a second year, so maybe.
1: Oh, well, I'll have to go okay, back. Okay, focusing
0: on films that shaped our culture from "I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang," which was from 1932, through very recent, I think uh, the most recent film is from 2005 or six, six, "An Inconvenient Truth." Right? That's the is that the Al Gore movie?
1: Anyway, yeah, can't remember. The, I don't remember. The Brokeback Mountain is 2005.
0: Yes, super. And then the last one is an Inconvenient
1: Truth. Oh, I didn't know uh, that. I didn't have that on my list. Okay.
0: Anyway, spurred funding for climate. Or Yes, that's that's so it's all how cinema over the years has impacted the um, culture, at least here in the States. So that's the, the so were you assigned certain films from those 16? Is that how it yeah, works? They selected and them and, uh, and assigned them to the four of us. And so do you know which are, which I guess broke back is one of them?
1: No, no, it's not. Oh. A are earlier on. So what okay. I'm doing are Boys in the Band. Uh, OK, that's a good one. The Channa Syndrome, mm-hmm. Children of a Lesser God, and Philadelphia.
0: Oh, they're in a row. So it's yeah, a particular. I guess so.
1: I've seen all four of those, it turns out. And good for you. <laughs> I think they're was... all pretty familiar, which is good. I mean, people, I think. Who being...
0: directed Boys in the Band? That wasn't uh, Sidney Lumet, was it? Who was that?
1: No, it was William Friedkin. He did William really Friedkin, of, course. of it, too. Yeah.
0: Of course. I have to rephrase uh, so, oh, isn't uh The Boys in the Band directed by William Friedkin? <laughs>
1: <It's>, uh, <laughs> no fair. You,
0: you can't. <laughs> well, given the time, even for him, I mean, I think for a young director, that was pretty, uh, I know brave is the right word, but well, certainly it not.
1: It was. I mean, it was a really controversial film. It was really, um, I mean, it's true that Midnight Cowboy had won the Oscar to the sh- to shock and surprise of everybody the year before. Yeah so i mean there was a gay character but still this was
0: uh oh bob alaban's character in it uh but
1: yeah but and this, then
0: i guess repressed uh joe buck was a repressed homosexual at least that's but it was so much more su- subtle compared to the voice man every character just about is very flamboyant and and
1: um well of course and, it came from mark crowley's play which is right. very theatrical and freaking preserves the theatricality and the, and the acerbic dialogue that's all insult humor and all that but i think one of the things about it i think there's certain things that make controversial or um potentially upsetting films acceptable is one of them is it's a form that people understand i mean first of all there's this idea of you getting a group of people together and fueling them with liquor and the, these truths come out so that i mean you have that in yes. um, and, 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 lo- and also, who's afraid
0: of Virginia Woolf, too? And
1: who's afraid of Virginia Woolf and, and the Albie? And so you have that here, and it's very witty and very sharp. But what's fascinating about it, and some I know some gays really like it and some don't, and younger gays maybe don't even get it. I mean, I, I'll take some interesting reactions along that line, but um, it was really. Very much of its time because this was before just before, a Stonewall was just happening. It was way pre-AIDS, pre real pre activism just beginning. You know they use the word um, homosexual. The word gay does not does not appear anywhere in it. That hasn't come into currency yet. So it's really the era of the sort of self-hating homosexual, and that makes us uncomfortable to some extent. We, we sort of can't. Was it really like that? But I think it was for a lot of gays at that time.
0: Oh, oh very much so. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so I, so so it was um, sort of a milestone, and I found a letter to the Times. Rex Reed had done a, a profile interview with Mort Crowley about the book and the film, and this I, I, I was even surprised the Times printed it was some woman writing how outraged she hadn't even seen it, of course. <laughs> and she wouldn't think of going to it but um it but was, you could
0: still uh
1: announce it. it to the heavens and it's yeah. in really vitriolic language it was horrible and vile and propaganda and trying to turn young men into homosexuals <laughs> so you could see from that this is the kind of uh, kind of audience that was out there and so in that sense it really was and, and in fact, I haven't seen it, but they did a revival of the play. And there's yes. a film of that revival and just a few years ago. So Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And and it's also set in the 60s. It's not they didn't try to make it contemporary. Well, you so can't really, can you? You can't. You can't translate it And that's the thing about it. It's very much of its time. And that's what's fascinating about it.
0: Yeah. Also, you mentioned uh the China syndrome. Uh which which actually maybe people forget just how close in time that that re- The release of that film was before three, the Three Mile Island disaster.
1: Isn't that remarkable? It's like three yeah. so months. It just coincided. It's amazing. And I think it's a, it was sort of good because that was a film that might have had hard, hard going. I'm not, I'm not even sure what, what kind of box office it did, but I think it was, uh, Ben pointed out that it was really Michael Douglas that made it happen. Uh, so, I mean, it didn't have obvious sex appeal to Hollywood, because it, was, it seemed like a kind of dry subject, but it doesn't come across as dry. I mean, there's a lot of technical information in it, but it never feels dry. It always feels there's a tremendous momentum in it.
0: Mm. And, mm. And, and yeah, and I'm sure, um, you know, people were expecting some sort of romance, maybe subplot between Jane Fonda. Well, I made and, that yeah.
1: point. I thought, hey, here's a film that oh. didn't feel like it had to have a love story. I mean, you have a moment. You don't have anything. I mean, Jane Fonda and Michael Douglas are sort of warring colleagues in a a way he's this stormy petrol um cinematographer and she Mm -hmm. wants to keep he's an independent he's a self-employed freelance and he wants she wants to keep her job with the the television station so they're at loggerheads a lot of the time because he wants to get this footage that they've taken of this accident that happened he wants to get that out and everybody else wants to suppress it so it's the whole you know that this is a, a an eternal story, the story of cover up, the story of whistleblowers and cover ups, and how hard it is to go against the corporate the corporate powers that be. And then Jack Lemmon, is fantastic as the guy who runs the the lab and or the uh, power plant, right? And he's just you know he's one of the world's great warriors. He's and the, and I said I said because there's a moment where he and Jane Fonda meet. It's a lovely meeting in a bar where they sort of have this gingerly kind of conversation he f- finally sort of feels that he can trust her but it's all about what's it's all about the subject at hand which is how to get this footage out and so they're on the same page and but there's no romance there i said the real love story is between jack uh lemon and, and the plant because it's his whole life <laughs> and, he, and you know he's yeah he, it's the most emotional storyline in it
0: mm. That's a great um, take on that. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the boys, of the band, then you flash, I guess, forward twenty some years to uh, mm-hmm. Philadelphia, where
1: such now, a good,
0: yeah. yeah, such a, 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 a and a, a real, in a way, old fashioned tearjerker too.
1: Old fashioned, and I, I think again, I think what made it, except, I mean, you couldn't. have, People might say, why didn't he have a gay playing? Well, first of all, no gay would have played that role. But most of them weren't out, especially if they were, you know, actors. They weren't out. And one of the things that made it so appealing to so many people was Tom Hanks, and it's just an incredible performance. Jonathan Demme really knows how to make a a, a great mainstream film. Denzel Washington, an early role, is fantastic as this lawyer. He's sort of an ambulance chasing lawyer who gradually and and a homophobe. I mean, he's just virulent. Homophobe. Yes,
0: well, they, and Jason Robards in one of maybe his last role. I'm not sure.
1: I think just about yeah, as the um as a lawyer, lawyer head of the law firm so yeah all these great can this wonderful bruce springsteen ballad that begins the film about philadelphia just heartbreaking hmm. and it says something in it like my clothes don't fit me no more i mean it's really uh, up front about and then you have you see uh, hanks in an aids clinic which is an actual aids clinic because you see actual patients there and, and the, wow. the film doesn't say that's what it is but you kind of I mean, even if you don't know it, it just feels so authentic and so kind of heartrending.
0: So maybe if it didn't change Hollywood, uh, it may have helped inch it along quite a bit, you know, in terms of the impact of the film um, and less of a stigma around homosexuality, around AIDS.
1: I think Uh, it has to, to, you have to think it did. I mean, there's no way of evaluating it. With Tom Hanks, which is America's...
0: America's sweetheart, or America's. Yeah. He's like the um,
1: Jimmy Stewart of his time, kind of.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It would have been interesting to see Jimmy Stewart in that role. Oh my <laughs> but... God.
1: <laughs> Wait, that's a bridge yeah. too far, I yeah. think.
0: Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm not no, gonna I just on.
1: thought of one thing I was going to say, which I said about the China syndrome. Speaking of the old stars, every time I saw Jane Fonda and Michael Douglas, I kept thinking of. Oh, right of their parents and how you, they could have played the two roles, Henry Fonda. I didn't
0: and, think of that, but that's and, right.
1: Yeah. I mean, they really could have played those two roles. It's yeah,
0: That's right. It's, that's an amazing, I, I'm surprised that that never occurred to me that they were both the sons of maybe the biggest stars in Hollywood. They were the you biggest know.
1: stars ever. Yeah.
0: Amazing. And I did skip over children of the or God, but which I appreciate Cause it was also not. So um, it just was, um, I don't know. It, it comes from another adaptation by the way from another mm-hmm. play we talked about the boys in the band this is another adaptation i remember seeing children of Lester lesser god on broadway in high school
1: oh really uh-huh
0: yeah I, well i like, grew up in it new york fairly
1: yeah. austere wasn't it yeah i guess so i'm
0: trying to think of who it was who, who was in it and i can't
1: well the actress well, i can't remember her name either but marlene she...
0: matlin she was yeah. in it right yeah,
1: yeah. Well, i don't and... think so. i was a woman an actress oh. a deaf actress. Uh, no wait a minute. You might be right. Yeah. a deaf actress who inspired... they used the,
0: She had never done a film, but she, they took her from the Broadway play, and they, they, that was her first real role on screen. So oh, I wait think a minute.
1: Had... I'm not sure about that because um, mm-hmm. the woman who let me, I can look for my notes, but the woman who who was the I can't even remember the name of the playwright right now. Do you have that in front of you?: I Actually
0: no. Yeah, I've
1: got it. <laughs> um, yeah, go to your notes. that's fine. Mark Medoff.
0: Mark Midoff, of
1: course. So Phyllis Frelich was a deaf actress who approached oh. him and said, there are no parts for deaf actresses. Why don't you write one? So he oh. did in consultation with her and her husband, Robert Steinberg, with uh-huh. were the models for it. So um, I, I know that somebody spotted some really good actor I forget who Ben could tell you spotted Marley Matlin in a play in Chicago I see and said, you've got to get her so I I mean I think you're pro- probably right that she was in the play as well as the movie I'm not sure but definitely the movie was a breakout role for her yeah and, and well, it was she good was, to she see- was in the movie two years ago yes uh, Toto, as, as the yeah, mom, yeah. mother yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah I was about to bring that up we're thinking yeah. you and I Molly we should have we should do our own. Yeah, we should, we should. <laughs> you're, you're, you should be doing one of these shows, by the way, a podcast, because you're, you have, uh, I mean, well, I just get so much, um, still like an amazing, first of all, you're a font, of course, of, of experience and knowledge around the film. You have such a context of all the, almost like the majority of modern cinema, um, you know, under your belt, but also just your, your enthusiasm and, and uh, still shines through. I mean, you know, it's terrific, but uh, and I, so again, uh, just to remind people the TCM reframe begins November 5th and then I would imagine probably um, I don't know how frequently they're showing the films, this, there's 16 of them. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly, but but we'll we'll put that information of how to get the whole schedule um, and of which four of those 16. Are... I think we are
1: doing two a night, but I'm okay. not sure how far apart the nights are. I see six.
0: And Kimberly Pierce is another person who's going to be talking about Larry Karaszewski. I hope I pronounced his name correct.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: The, the I believe the screenwriter. And Donald Bogle and yourself will be all presenting films and talking to Ben right. putting those putting the films in context mm-hmm. and how they impacted the culture when they came out when they fantastic and you got again a new book coming out well you're I'm sorry, you shouldn't say it that you're working, I'm working. on I'm a new employee. right is, that's what, and i what, well maybe what will be wonderful is when when you are done with that sometime in the next year or so too i don't know how long it takes you to write but maybe you can come back on and we can talk about that that
1: would be great fun i'd love to do that
0: me too i'm so glad we we met
1: me too well thank you i'll look forward to our next conversation
0: me too thank you thank you very much great talking to you you too have a great weekend
1: thank you you too get some coffee
0: (laughs) (laughs) i will and enjoy the foliage yeah bye-bye bye now So here's Andy and me talking about a few things. He's, he's become a Twitter pro. I mean, it's interesting that we had this conversation just before Elon Musk uh, bought Twitter. We'll see how that goes. Maybe I'll, bring, I'll ask Andy to come back on for part two if he's open to it, because I would like to know after he's built up, meaning Andy has built up this enormous following which is even a surprise to him how that happened, uh, that how that is working out with this new uh, stage, I guess you'd call it, of this social media platform called, we call Twitter. And he's also a podcaster, and I, he has on wonderful guests, and we're going to talk about it. I could bring it all up, but there's really no point, because right now we're going to talk to uh, Andy Ostroy about his podcast called The Backroom which he does just down the road from where I live. And so we're going to talk about all of that. He's a great guy. If you don't know him, I hope you get to know him. Here it is, my conversation with Andy Ostroy, you'll find only here on FilmWax Radio. are you? I'm well thank you. Yeah I'm just was gonna look and see when it was that you were on with your documentary.
2: Yeah probably November maybe. Oh really? December yeah.
0: So it's almost a full year that's cool. Almost
2: a year yeah it's crazy crazy and it's a crazy small world story we have with uh, Jen
0: yeah, very much. Although I have to say,
2: <laughs> you seem startled. You were like, Hey, Hey, how do you know this?
0: <laughs> I was yeah, a little bit. Cause I thought, Oh, maybe I was your counselor. Yeah. It's uh, it's happened. Uh, you know, do you know, um, Jake Perlin by any chance? No. Do you, have you been to the Metrograph or, well, he used to be a programmer at BAM. I mean, he's kind of like down in the, down in the cities, well, pretty known in the film world i guess because he he was a programmer for years with bam and then he uh was one of the people that opened the metrograph in down in lower manhattan
2: oh okay yeah no the name sounds vaguely familiar but
0: yeah well he does have that kind of name as well i mean you're but but um so anyway so one day i was going to some film event this is many years ago now and um you know he goes are you adam shartoff and i'm like yeah and he goes oh you were my camp counselor (laughs) camp counselors so you know just like um it was so many years earlier and i not that i haven't looked old, i look much older but you know i didn't change as dramatically let's say as a kid did into an adult so mm-hmm. it's harder to sometimes recognize mm-hmm. them you know yeah. than it is if i was their counselor you know but i always have that i still have counselors of mine that are around so you know
2: yeah um oh there we go sorry I'm
0: just... no worry yeah this is the time to work out all the little uh tweaks and bugs and stuff so going
2: on here Uh, all right there we are all right we're back we're back in control
0: okay i can't see you
2: yeah my my camp years you can't see me oh there we go (laughs) how did that happen all right my my camp years were the best years of my life unbelievable like I yeah same. I still have friends from camp and it's just me
0: crazy. too. Yeah, <laughs> we're we're this community. I was gonna say is like you know with Jen I was it's always surprising because but on the other hand it seems like sometimes all all roads lead to my camp. It's just like the uh, I don't know if camp Lu, Lu Emma. How do you pronounce yeah. it? Luema. Emma. That was yours. It was
2: actually, yeah, it was the the founders I think. Were oh Lou, and,
0: and Emma. Emma. Oh sure. Yeah. yeah, that sort of reminds me. I was just thinking about these other people I know in the Brooklyn who started a beer distribution company called kelso beer and it was like kelly and so sonia and so yeah.
2: i suspect uh, there are a bazillion companies that have been named <laughs> it's, it's Mir- miramax being the, the, that's the most true famous in the yeah universe. let's
0: go through them all shall we
2: yeah all right i got nothing but time
0: um yes so you hadn't started uh the podcast last winter when we talked to her fall whenever right um Obviously, you're only about 20 episodes in or something, right?
2: Yeah. The podcast was was started uh, around June, and it was something I wanted to do for a long time. And uh, it was really an outgrowth of the Twitter experience that I've had and continue to have, where I've built up a pretty good following and have sort of created just not anything intentional, but just my voice is... A little bit unique to some and you know it's got a a following and I've started to get people who follow me that are across you know celebrities, politicians, musicians, people I've you know kind of revered over the years and so it's a little bit shocking and so I I always thought that it wouldn't be cool to take that base of uh, support and jump into this thing called podcasting which I had no idea what the hell was about i didn't listen to podcasts but i thought that it would be well, something that would be other interesting than mine what's that
0: other than mine you mean
2: yeah of course uh, yeah
0: but uh how did you build that what was yeah i mean there must have been seeds right yeah that had already sort of been planted in your career which helped to when you did start a twitter account and you started to understand the. How to sort of harness <laughs> Twitter, you know, and use it in a way that would get your voice out there. You must have had some in your background, right? There had to be some way of that it it was already launched in some way. No,
2: I, I mean, I, I would love to lend credence to some greater theory of of intention uh-huh. and planning and strategy, but truly it.
0: Well, I don't even mean that much. I don't even know. I just mean, did you already have a lot of relationships in that regard? That No,
2: no. I mean, okay. it it started when politics really started to annoy me uh, and get really ugly. And, you know, uh, the, the simplest explanation I give is like when you walk down the street, you see somebody just yelling to themselves, right? And you think they're crazy. Well, if you do the same thing on Twitter, you know, you're an influencer, you know, and that's really how simple it is. It's like you start with nothing and you just start walking down the Twitter street yelling and spewing your opinions. And you may end up alone or you might end up with a crowd around you. Like just it's like going into a park and like with a megaphone and going, mm-hmm. oh, you know, down in with a, the in a box. And a box, and the people are either gonna start forming and and sh- listening to what you have to say, or not and um you know I think uh you know people started listening and and so it just it built from there um I think I'm you know pretty direct, I think I'm also uh honest in the sense of criticizing my own party and my own politicians. It's not. I'm not one of those people. It's like whatever the Republicans do is bad, and the Democrats do the same shit. It's good, you know. I call out whoever needs to be called out. It just so happens that there's a lot more calling out that's needed on the other side, in my opinion. And I, I end up doing, you know, 95% of that. But I've also taken a lot of shit from people. If I, you know, there are people that love me, and then all of a sudden I say one thing about Biden, and it's like, boom, you know, it's like, okay, right.
0: with the having this
2: no ob- no objectivity whatsoever.
0: Right, they're coming from a pl- pl- place in the in the best of situations. They're coming from a place where this isn't the good. It's not good timing. It's not that uh, the criticism itself so much as the timing of right now. We all have to kind of uh, uh, you know huddle together and and you know uh, it's not the time to start putting doubt in in Democrats or people that maybe wouldn't otherwise vote for Biden again. Right. Put any doubt yeah. in their minds right now. I mean, but I don't know. Uh, that's what
2: a, what- What I get often is like, this is not helpful. And my response, if I do respond, is like, I didn't know that I was supposed to be helping. Like, I'm not on anyone's campaign. I'm not paid as a consultant. Like, I'm an American. I have an opinion. And my opinion happens to be that if someone doesn't serve me well, I talk about that. And if they happen to have a D after their name, so be it. I think we, you know, we live in this world of tribalism, where like, you know, everything the other guy does is bad, whatever your guy does is good. That's really dangerous. And at, at the end, at the end of the day, you as a voter, as an American, as a taxpayer, if that's your philosophy, you're not getting served. That does not serve your interests. So I'm not in a cult. I'm not on a team. Uh, you know, I'm I'm I vote for people, and if they let me down, I I, you know, that's what will happen in my tweets. You know, they'll they'll see that uh, disappointment. And so over the years, that kind of built and, and they got to a point of like, wow, I could maybe use this base of support now to start a podcast. And, and that's really the simple explanation.
0: Do you remember getting back to Twitter for a moment, though? But do you remember around what when it was or what it was that you were maybe tweeting about that sort of caught? Uh, Was there, because a lot of people are, there's a lot of people, it turns out, that are tweeting about politics and some of their voices go unheard and others, it's sort of, they do, uh, people do, you know, obviously uh, connect to it, you know.
2: I think that's a really good question. I think for me, it really started to take off when I went after Trump directly, when I would tweet to him Mm -hmm. in response to his tweets, to his behavior, things he said, things done and i remember people would say to me friends even whatever people would say to me like what, what are you doing no one listens to you no one they, <laughs> Trump doesn't hear what you say like nobody cares in the Trump family but you know what guess what Donald Trump Eric Trump Mil- uh, uh, Don Ivanka, Jr. Ivanka. and Ani yeah. they all blocked me they did so, so someone was listening Michael Cohen blocked me you know Back um, then,
0: so, when he was yeah. the 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 fixer, yeah. or when he, yeah,
2: Michael Cohen, he was a, the first, and he he uh, actually enjoyed his tweet that he put out. He said, uh, "Hey everybody, block this asshole." Um, the irony is, years later, he and I would probably be friends.
0: Yeah, you know? well, yeah,
2: but yeah. he wasn't listening at the right. time, and you know, he he had to learn the hard way. You know, he went to prison; I didn't. So, um. And I would love to actually have him on the podcast, Michael, if you're um, out there listening. That would be
0: a good episode.
2: It would. It would. Because trying,
0: now you're, now you're the mea culpa you know, sure.
2: version. Sure. Yeah. I, I, I'm very supportive. I've had Rick Wilson on. I've had Stephanie Grisham on, Scaramucci. You know, to me, what you did in the past doesn't matter to me. If you're on my side right now, if you're against <laughs> mm-hmm. Trump and Trumpism, and you're trying to save democracy, Liz Cheney, you know, people like that.
0: Yeah, um, I hear, I've heard you talk about it.
2: Yeah. I mean, it is really important. There's there's a this election that's coming up. It's really important in the sense of, you know, it's it's not about inflation. It's not about, you know, the economy. It's it's about saving democracy. Like without that, it's not even about abortion. It's without democracy. None of those things matter. You know, if we're living in an autocracy. Your rights with, with the conversation about what your rights are is just ridiculous. So people have to really understand that. So. But, you know, that's where it started to really move from, you know, when the, the needle moved for me was when I really went after Trump. And I had people that would start messaging me saying, I, you're saying exactly what I'm feeling and thinking. I just don't know how to put words to it. Mm. So it's like it's it was kind of an honor and a little scary at the same time to sort of think that, like, I now have this reason. What used to just be me, you know, venting like a crazy man. Now, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, there's like a a little bit of a responsibility that that people are telling me that I'm I'm out there, you know, advocating their positions because they they don't know how to do it, especially, in a when it started like 140 characters and now 280 characters. You know, that's another thing about Twitter is, you know, just learning the language. So it's really a language. just like any other language. And you have to learn how to get your point across in a way that will resonate in a very small amount of time and so um, but it's been really interesting I mean uh, you know I've gone viral in a really great way fun way I've gone viral in in a really not so fun way so Mm -hmm. you know it's just like learning how to get through it because it is kind of a treacherous space but if you for the most part learn how to do that Twitter to me is amazing I mean I've made friends and gotten to know people and done things all over the world because of twitter i mean it's incredible really incredible as a medium to connect people to connect people that you previously would have zero access to
0: oh that's now all of a sudden
2: you you have access to them access because
0: uh, of their um yeah because of who they are their status and also just maybe geographically and uh yeah, so but I have to imagine early on, then there was a lot. I mean, a lot of negativity because, as you say, you're being blocked by uh, the the Trumps, but also, you know, at the beginning, you've just got to, all of a sudden you have a lot of negative response coming to you, trolls and whatnot. Uh, so that you uh, that can I think as on its own, uh, sabotage somebody. Any you know, somebody, anybody who who doesn't really have the thick skin, you know, mm-hmm. um, you kind of have to, I would imagine, I'm guessing I'm asking for a response, but you have to kind of get through this period until <laughs> you feel, realize, oh, they're the more vocal ones in general. And I'm going to ignore them and just sort of keep, you know, focused.
2: Yeah. It's a statement, that's but a, put a
0: question mark at the end of it. Yeah.
2: No, that's absolutely, you're absolutely correct. I mean, in the beginning, I used to read a lot of the comments. Because I just was fascinated by the whole medium. I was like, "Wow, this is crazy," and and then I realized well, there's just some crazy people on Twitter, and you just can't, you know. The, the thing about Twitter too is when you have a blue check mark, which is, means you're a verified user, mm-hmm. or whatever you know reason. However, they you know, but um, you can filter out the crazies for the most part by just staying in that blue check space. So if I want if I do want to read comments. Um, I could read the verifieds only, oh. so there, there's there. You're starting with a baseline of, you know, you you can assume that people are reasonable, rational. They may differ in opinion, but and I have bantered with they a behave. couple of people. Yeah. They behave. They stay within the 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 lanes of civility and and, and respect and and oh. all that. Um, and so that took a while to sort of let that click in. That like oh I don't have to listen I don't have to read this shit because people are insane and then there's also the bots which I Best still friend. don't really understand the whole notion of bots like what is a bot who is a bot or who's controlling the bots like I see some guy named Dave with eight followers and he's telling me I'm an asshole like to me that's like just a real guy but apparently that's just like an algorithm somewhere you know mm-hmm. it, the person doesn't exist So, I, so I don't pay attention to the bots I don't you know I don't get involved in that I just I use it for the value that it presents, and again, it's just it, it could be an incredible landscape if you know how to you know mow the lawn and
0: you
2: know, <laughs> yes, so you photo, were, sell, you know
0: yeah so you were doing that and then uh, uh, now when you start the podcast, which by the way is called the back room. Oh. And we'll get to why you called it that, and what your thinking is behind the t- the name of the podcast. But did you were you able to use your uh, the community yeah. around Twitter that you've uh, built uh, to to start uh, uh, your uh, you know creating an audience for the podcast?
2: Yeah, and that that really was the the mindset that you know. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, look, I for me, I have like uh, I think as of today, it's like ninety, almost ninety two thousand followers. Which you know, I mean, Taylor Swift has I think over a hundred million, and there's a so, but it, but to me, it's about ninety one thousand. Wait a minute.
0: Wait a minute. Million and one because I just yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> How much? What did she have? <laughs> I just I just started following her so.
2: Oh, fair. that's because you re- um,
0: reminded me of that. Yeah, but
2: if I if I have ninety two thousand followers, it's basically ninety one thousand nine hundred and fifty more than I ever thought I'd get. So I'm very mm. appreciative, and to me, it's a huge amount of people compared to others. It's it's you know not not the biggest base in the world, but to me, it's huge. And so I, I thought that okay, if I could start a podcast, I, I do have something of a built in audience. You know, uh, if just five or ten percent of those people listen if two percent listen that's a pretty good podcast audience and then also the people that i met on twitter you know could be potential guests you know uh aside from people i know in my my non-twitter life mm-hmm. and that's how it's gone pretty much since uh, june is that it's a mix of people from my personal life uh work life twitter life um and you know the story of how i How I got to actually start it, you know, there's a um, uh, an organization called uh, it's a nonprofit called Radio Free Ryan Cliff, and it's based upstate New York and it's run by a guy named Eddie Rosenberg, and um, he does local radio shows local podcast type shows. But it's basically like people in the community who come on and like somebody does a show about therapy, someone does a show about cooking and, right. and it's, it goes, goes around the community. And so a, a friend of mine, this guy, Norm Magnuson, he has a, a weekly talk show and my film, Adrian, which uh, people can still see on HBO Max about my late wife, Adrian Shelley, um, it was going to be playing at the local theater in town uh, the following day. So Norm said, Hey, would you like to come on my, yes, Mm -hmm. Upstate films at Rhinebeck. Norm said, would you like to come on my, uh, my radio show, uh, the night before and, and promote the screening? And I was like, great. And so when I went in, um, and this dovetails into your question about the back room, um, it's literally a little room in the back of a store in, in Rhinecliff, New York. And uh, I sat down, I did the interview with Norm and and then all of a sudden bells went off and I started asking Maddie, do you guys, are you looking for more shows? Are you looking for, can you do a podcast that's more national perhaps than just community based? And it was yes, 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 yes. And literally two months later, the, the first episode launched, but it is in the back room of a, a store called the Epicurean uh owned by Patricia Wynn. And so it's a um it's an interesting little setup. It's kind of like Mark Marin's garage, except with meat and cheese.
0: Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh you well you know I'm a neighbor, right? I mean
2: Yes, you nearby. mentioned yeah. yeah. So
0: I, yeah. I and I work at a radio station in Red Hook.
2: Oh wow. I didn't I didn't realize you were that close. That's <laughs> yeah. awesome. You all well, you should cool. come down and check it yeah. out uh, I, one day
0: yeah for sure i will um yeah i mean uh i work it's a great independent radio station in red hook which is you know just minutes from where you're talking about of course mm-hmm. um and i was trying to certainly picked up and dropped off my son enough times at the station to probably know and uh i'm trying to think if i've met this guy eddie though but could figure that out later i guess um but uh so okay, so yeah, because I remember uh, I kind of started. It's interesting. You this story is so familiar because I I guess I started this almost the same way. Just to just for to share because uh uh you know I was doing like film screening series in Brooklyn back in eleven twelve years ago, and then all of a sudden they were starting this what they what was internet radio. Do you remember that?
2: Yes, I do. Which is,
0: which is sort of like what more like um you know, it's just, it's, it's sort of halfway between the old fashioned radio, terrestrial radio and podcasting. And uh, I was asked to join that and do a talk show about film. And I said, I have no idea what You know, they say, oh, just promote, bring on people from your film series and promote it. And so that was, but very quickly I realized, oh, wow, this is, I could bring on anybody, you know? And then I realized shortly after that, why am I doing internet radio? Because it could be podcast and reach everybody and anybody in the world with an internet signal, except for a couple of countries maybe. (laughs) But, uh, you know, so, yeah, I mean, um, it's it's kind of a, a funny thing. As you figure these things out, you know just how much and and what you can do with these tools. It's it's pretty amazing. So who was your first? So who was your first guest?
2: My first guest was Paul Rudd. Yeah.
0: Oh, okay. uh, his,
2: a friend and a business partner in a candy mm-hmm. store in Rhinebeck. Oh yeah. Um, and he came into the studio. Most of our interviews are on Zoom, but because um, right. he has a, a, a house uh, in Dutchess County uh he came over and, and we did that uh in person which was a lot of fun and uh we just did another one in person uh which is our current episode with soledad o'brien right um she's also in Local. uh yeah she's about a half hour away but she she drove in nice and uh we did that live too uh in person right. um
0: was that one um oh, yeah. was that one also through your, having met her through twitter or
2: um yeah. Uh, yes, yes and no. It was actually, um, I, I, it was like Twitter, but also through my foundation, the Adrian Shelley Foundation. I see, I see. And so there was um, a, sort of a thing that happened at the same time and that right. got us and also, connected. Right.
0: Sure. And um, yeah, no, I know I've listened to a few. And my personal favorite, of course, has to be the Matt Friend episode, which another... <laughs> social media phenomenon uh, who <laughs> I, I feel like it, you are together an hour, which by the is you would think would be plenty of time, but when you know, when you're trying to f- uh, figure out the secret sauce recipe from somebody, <laughs> sometimes you need hours, you know, because you're oh trying God. to, you spent the whole time trying to get to him to t- kind of give you the special, the secret of how he does impressions. And of course he just, <laughs> Got this arbitrary talent that you know people like you and me um, would love to have. Like you know, um, that guy is a freak of nature.
2: He is. I I tell you, the moment I saw him, uh, I started sending his videos to my children.
0: uh, Me too. Me too. I started sending (laughs) the videos to your children too.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I know that's pretty creepy. Uh, uh, Well, you know, know, talk to you about that. Um, No, my my kids are eight, eight. they range in age from eighteen to thirty-six, and so they're at an age where you know they're all able to handle you know adult stuff and language and whatever. Not that he's you know racy or anything, but um, and so I was fascinated by him because I uh, over the I used to do stand-up comedy back in the day just as a oh, wow. hobby, and I I've always loved impressions, and there's some impressions I can do, um, and so it's like a personal thing of mine to be like in love with co- comedians and, and impressionists in particular and in particular people who do trump because you know there's all kinds of trump impressions and i talked about this with matt you know you have the really yeah. abstract you know uh uh alec baldwin you know where it just becomes more of a parody but then you have right. guys like matt who just literally have aced the voice the mannerisms the ticks, right. everything right. um but I, I i since i've had him on oh and so the minute I saw him, I was like, I've got to get this guy on my podcast. I have to just I, get into this yeah. whole thing. And so it didn't take too long to get through to him. And and, no. and he was very humble and very appreciative and really nice kid, um, 24 years old. But since he's been on the pod, I've been watching his videos and really trying to study, like, OK, what what is the secret to his Trump? And so there's certain things he does which is very standard like whenever he does trump there's always like when he starts his oppression he stops he looks to the side as if someone's there and be like excuse me excuse me you're stupid you're stupid you're nasty right.
0: yeah that's his way that's in part yeah. of,
2: that's that's part of every one of his so like if he's like trump's talking about iran trump's talking about obama trump's talking. About, there's so there's a formula to his so then he so he has like a he has like, it's almost like, I'm a drummer, so it's almost like drumming. You you have a beat, and then you have fills, right? So um, his beat is often the same, and then he fills it with other stuff, and that's what makes it funny. Like yesterday, he posted something about, uh, tr- he posted a video of Trump commenting on the criticism of him threatening Jews. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and As a Jew, I'm always interested in, in Jews being threatened. Not that I want Jews being threatened, but I... It's concern of mine sure. <clears throat> throughout history. Uh, and he's just so freaking funny. It is unbelievable. And uh I told that kid at the end of the interview, I was like, well, if I were you, I would just go sit every day, like for a half a day in Starbucks.
0: Yeah. Get because, the most out of this time. Yeah. <laughs> because
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, two years from now, you're yeah. not going to be able to do that. Like, yeah. Enjoy that anonymity now. Right. Unless you can he do it Growing pers- up.
0: Yeah. But, you know, sure. Yeah.
2: So I think he's going to be huge, and I think I've been watching you know since like the days of Frank Gorshin and Rich Little, and I mean I'm me old too. All yeah, me so. too.
0: Sure. Yeah. And I tell you, I this, remember the, co- kid, the 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 copycats, right? I mean, this was oh, yeah. uh, was a show right with the mm-hmm. impersonators back in the day. Yeah, but no. <laughs> I think this I, guy, I think you yeah. and
2: me, you and me were probably the only two people watch that show.
0: <laughs> yeah. But he so. is
2: he is the best I've ever seen. He literally, I mean, he, he does hundreds of impressions.
0: Yeah. And they're all and, amazing. It's, well, it's because he, yeah, he seems to not even maybe I don't know if he's even aware from what I see in the interview. I don't know that he's completely aware that he has a very particular ear, like a gift that is. I mean, it, it's like, um, it's just so... Um, it's so maybe it's so non-intellectual so non-cerebral so you know what i mean like that he's it's able like to tap he can hear things that most people yep. you know maybe only dogs and you know i don't know yeah uh, <laughs> could hear because yeah he can do so many different people he just seems to i mean then there's a i'm sure of course a lot of gaps but i mean come on i mean um It's just it's just really remarkable. Anyway, so people should um, check out if you don't already know Matt Friend, check it out. Listen to the interview with Andy first, of course, and then check out Matt because, I mean, he's an Instagram. He's also learned, I don't know, you know, Instagram and, and TikTok. He's learned how to use those tools quite effectively. You know, but he's he, a
2: very charming kid in the sense yeah. that he is so modest and humble. Like he, he was just on Howard Stern about a week or two ago. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and Stern he does an amazing he, Howard right, Stern. Right, it's one
0: of his dead yeah. Ringer type. Yeah, and,
2: and he's also a huge fan. So for him to be on the show right. and to have Howard be like, wait a second. Like, it's scary how much this kid sounds like me. Yeah. So he posted a video after the show of him just sitting in a room. Listening yeah. to the interview, and and he's just like he's freaking like, out. He's freaking out. like he yeah. literally like I again I have four children like I've seen my kids do that over the years like if you give them a present they like they're like, <sighs> like it was yeah. so genuinely charming because he set that stage of his career where he can't I, believe I it don't, I don't think he knows how good he is or what he's accomplishing even though he may think he does mm-hmm. because he's just he's a kid. And, and, but, uh, so it's really refreshing to see somebody who just clearly isn't full of themselves yet, or may never be or or just, you know, appreciates the thrill of the stuff he's going through. So he was a, he was a really fun guest. I could have gone on for hours i just we played a round of like a lightning round and i'm right. just like throwing out names and he was like one after the other i could have done that i had a list of like a million impressions i could have just kept throwing at him and it would have been hilarious
0: yeah it's a, it's it's a um an enormous amount of talent for somebody as young as that like he's got a range of skill that's that usually somebody twice his age might have yeah lucky. Yeah. yeah for sure um anyway so uh and so you've done about 20 episodes of the podcast. It's called The Back Room. Mm-hmm. And most of them are, are political shows, right? But it's nice to throw in an exception.
2: Yeah. One of the things that I think I, I, I want to to have The Back Room how, to be different than other podcasts in the sense of, you know, is it political? Is it pop culture? Is it one or the other? And, I, and I've told this to non-political people who come on that over the years, I, I really get annoyed when I hear People Mm -hmm. in the public say things to like musicians or actors or athletes, like, oh, just shut up and sing. Don't, we don't, we don't pay you to be political, you know, or play ball and don't talk politics. And I want the podcast to be a place where non political people can come in as Americans, Mm -hmm. as voters and express their political views. And so I've had people who, who have, who are fairly political on Twitter, uh, and in the public sphere, uh, people like Judd Apatow, uh, musicians like Phineas, Billie Eilish's bro, um, who use their, their Twitter platform to either tweet very political comments or to retweet other people's very political comments. Mm-hmm. But, but regardless, mm-hmm. they're using Twitter to establish their own political views, uh, be it on abortion, gun reform, be climate change. And so i like to say that it's always political even if i have a singer on it's political because politics is the base of the of the podcast the people who come on come from different walks of life to express political views
0: um last uh last thing uh do you uh what do you so we're days away or i mean i guess technically we're weeks away but it feels like days away from the midterms and um just want to get your gauge your what you're what you're where you're where you're at with the with it because I, I i thought it seemed i felt like you know you just keep hearing back and forth where democrats are versus republicans right now Where, mm-hmm. uh you know um and who's going to end up coming out on top in this case that's it's a nerve-wracking thing to know you know i just sort well, of want to get it behind us
2: it is nerve-wracking and and it... Bringing on a lot of anxiety because I mean, we say this all the time, but this literally is the most important election in our history mm-hmm. because it's either going to be the beginning of the ultimate dismantling of our democracy or the be, the real beginning finally of getting rid of Trump and Trumpism, the, mm-hmm. ultimate, re, the ultimate rebuke. Uh, my most popular tweet, uh, which I think has something like 50,000 likes, was when I said something a few months ago that, you know, don't talk to me about Republicans taking the house because of conventional wisdom, conventional wisdom being, you know, a president, first term president always loses. There's been nothing in politics the the last six years, seven years. That's been conventional, nothing. Conventional wisdom has failed miserably. Anything you think should have happened, the opposite happened. So to me, I, I mean, and maybe this is a little bit more wishful thinking than anything else, but I really do believe that that uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade created a groundswell of, of, of uh, uh, anger and frustration in this country, and that that's going to be a huge uh, driver of, of uh, voter turnout. And, you know, we've seen before how women and women of color and people of color um, have you know, uh, helped elect people. And so, uh, and, and been the driving force of an election. I think the Republicans are going to lose. I think they're going to lose big. I think they, they really overestimated and overshot this whole extremist thing. I can't fathom, you know, uh, I can't fathom how people are going to put them in power and control of any branch of Congress. Redistricting is a problem in the house I mean, they, they, you know, the Republicans, I think, agree with me, which is why they have spent years, you know, cutting up the districts so that people, yeah, I mean, right, exactly. So that's an issue, but I think it's all about turnout. I mean, you know, we have on average 55% people go vote, 55% of Democrats, 60% of Democrats go vote. Just think what would happen if 70% voted, 75%. We can elect whoever we want. Right. We could codify Roe v. Wade. We could do whatever. We could enact climate bills. I don't think people really understand the power they have. But, you know, Election Day is the one day of the year where the janitor and the billionaire have the exact same power. Right. And people don't really appreciate that. You know, you go to other countries where there's democracies, like you know, have eighty-five percent of the country is voting. You know, so yeah. But I do think I do think we're gonna we're gonna be pleasantly surprised that people have had enough of this craziness. I I don't know how else to say it. It's just insanity out there. And you know, we've seen things leading up to this. All the special elections, including our own upstate, like have gone the way of Democrats. The the Kansas mm-hmm. cement abortion amendment uh, bill went the, the way of the left. Like we're seeing the signals all year that people have had enough and they are worried about democracy. And and that's more important to them than paying another dollar or two in, in gas per gallon per, per, uh, per gallon in gas and so but i could be sitting we could be talking a month from now and i could be literally wondering <laughs> i know
0: space. we're gonna both be, we're both be lying lying behind a dumpster with our yeah. our our pint bottles and yeah you know um
2: exactly yeah
0: it's scary well,
2: it really is scary but i have faith in america you know a friend of mine uh, and i always debate because she claims that i said that uh trump uh, wouldn't get elected, and I said no. I specifically had said, I don't think a majority of my fellow Americans will vote for him, and they didn't. So, um, I don't think a, fel- a majority of my fellow Americans are going to put these people in power. I just don't, but, you know, from your mouth, I've been to, wrong before
0: <laughs> to America's yeah. ears. That's all I can say, yeah, yep. exactly. Um, well, thanks for uh well i'm glad i can go into the day a little uh, less maybe um <laughs> delusional <I'm stressed> out. <laughs> Delu- well, I, if this is i'd rather have delusion sometimes <laughs> but um anyway it was a pleasure to reconnect with you and uh, likewise the name of your podcast is called the back room you can look for andy on of course twitter we'll put the links and we'll put everything uh, uh how to find you uh, at the end there um and we should do it again soon. It would be really nice to keep in touch.
2: Yes, thanks for having me. And uh, let's, yeah. uh, hopefully we'll be toasting uh, each other in a couple of weeks. Uh, if,
0: truly, truly. Yeah. And if you're coming reason. through, stop by. You can give you a tour of the radio station. You've got to check it out. Yeah. A, no. Likewise,
2: track. we should offline. We should maybe set something like that up. Okay. Nice. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Share. Thank our, you, Adam. Yeah. My pleasure. Thank you, Andy. It was great. Thank you. You too. All right. Bye bye. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the show. Don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash filmwax. This is Adam Shartoff signing off for another episode of FilmWax Radio. Take care of yourselves and the ones you love. Until next time.